Hi everyone, it's Damon Klotz, host of the Culture First podcast. Before we get started with this episode, I wanted to take a moment to say a big thank you to the thousands of people who've joined us at our Culture First virtual events this year. At this year's events, we've heard from fantastic keynote speakers like Susan Cain, Dylan Alcott, and Valerie Jarrett. Our team of data scientists and people scientists were crunching millions of data points to bring the latest research to attendees. And speaking about the research, CultureAmp customers learned how our latest products are helping companies close the gender gap for a more equitable employee experience. If you're sitting there saying, hey, Damon, I wanted to see some of that content. Well, don't worry. Our sessions from Culture First APAC and Americas are now available on demand. You can click the link in the episode show notes or just head to cultureamp.com to learn more. All right, let's get started. But I think it gets such a, a bad rep and people are like, oh, performance management is universally despised. And that's not the case. We actually see that your high performers are like acutely aware and keenly interested in your performance management approach. Culture first. 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 This podcast is a show for people who believe that a better world of work is possible and they want to be part of the change required in order to make that a reality. On today's episode, we're going to be looking at some fascinating research that looks at the relationship between employee engagement and performance. To give you some context on the scope of this research, the team here at CultureAmp analysed over 200,000 employees at 741 companies over two years. That's allowed us to get to the bottom of some pretty interesting questions like, are the high performers at my company more or less likely to suffer from burnout? How often should a performance conversation take place? As well as trying to work out what type of feedback highly engaged and highly performing employees need to be hearing right now. Do they want to be praised or do they need constructive feedback? So if you've been pondering any of those questions, you've come to the right place. At the start of the episode, you're going to hear me discuss the issues that I have with many of the clickbait articles written about company culture, where they've written the entire article based on a one-time survey from only a couple of 100 employees. What those numerous studies aren't able to do, because of that limited sample size, is explore the relationship between engagement and performance for different performance buckets. Our people science and research team are uniquely positioned to do this. Before we get started with this interview, I do have a quick disclaimer for you. A few episodes ago, you met my colleague, Freesia Jackson. She's the lead researcher here at CultureAmp, and she joined me on the show to lay the foundations on all things data and research. We went back to the very start, to the basics, to learn about all the different types of data that we're collecting here at CultureAmp. To help listeners understand that process, we actually spoke about how one individual survey response ends up entering the world's largest data lake of employee data, which then allows our team to do some pretty unique research. 
So if you haven't had to listen to that episode yet, then I really recommend that you actually pause this one and go back and listen to that episode first. Now, because I've just given you a quick little break, I'm assuming that either you're still here because you've listened to that episode already, thank you, or that you've paused and went back and speed listened to that one so that you can join us back here for this research that I was teasing at the start. So now that you've got those foundations in place, let's jump over to my conversation with Freesia to learn what that research has told us. So today on the Culture First podcast, we're actually having a return guest. Freesia Jackson is back on the Culture First podcast to talk all things data or data with me. Freesia, welcome back to the show. Data. Thank you for having me. <laughs> data. All right. <laughs> We have already got our first data point in this brand new episode. It is data, not data. So, you are a recurring guest. Uh, We did do an episode earlier um, this year where we sort of really laid the foundations about how we think about data at CultureRamp, what we have access to. And uh, we got some really amazing feedback from that episode from people in the industry, from our customers, even from campers about how it really helped them get a better understanding on really just like how amazing and complex the amount of data that we have have access to is and just how special it is, which is why I had to get you back on the show because we have some new data to be discussing. But considering you are a returning guest, I don't need to necessarily do all of the intro questions, but I think it would be remiss of me to not least do a quick check-in question. So, Freesia, if I really knew you today, what would I know? What would you know? Um... I feel gigantic because I'm seven months pregnant and feel like I have a basketball in my uterus. <laughs> that's what you would know. That is the most, spe- <laughs> that's a very specific answer for everyone listening. Um, you know, I guess one, one of the things that we need to do on, on a podcast is use stories in a way to create visuals for people um, who are only listening. So uh, I very much appreciate you showing up with that truth and honesty. I personally can't relate to how you're feeling today, but what I can say is that I have just come back off a 31-day kind of road trip in the in the US and Australia, speaking at some events in New York and Los Angeles and the biggest startup event in Sydney. So, I'm very energized from all of the in-person stuff, and I'm also very ready to be back in my little <laughs> podcast studio here having this and conversation. Drained. You're on both sides of that spectrum, probably. I'm, I am on both sides. I'm holding two opposite things at yeah. the same time, and they're both true. So, we're back to talk some brand new data. So, if you haven't listened to the first part in this series, um, I'll put the episode link in the show notes. I think it's really important to sort of get the um, foundational knowledge about all, everything that's going on with the culture around data, how much we have access to, how we think about it, getting some of those core terms, um, you know, understood. Now, what we're going to do is, you know, we're assuming everyone has had a chance to listen to that. Now, we're going to actually just focus on a specific set of research. Now, we have access to a lot. We could research a lot. What are we going to be discussing today? Yeah, today we're going to be talking about the relationship between employee engagement and employee experience with employee performance. Now, I feel like this is probably, if I just Googled this, there is a lot of 
articles or research things like I, like I feel like this is a very clickbaity thing like engagement and performance what is I guess specific or unique about what we're looking at right now yeah and I I love being called out like that because you're totally right um this question is nothing new uh, if you look at the academic literature, it's everywhere, not only employee engagement and individual performance, but also team and organizational. Uh, but what's different is that in those studies, they're typically looking at one company or only a few employees. And, and when I looked, I could the largest study I found was looking at 5,000 employees. And at Culturam, as people who have listened to the previous episode know, you know, we're really in a unique position to have access to so much data in that data lake. Um, and because our product offering includes not only engagement, but also performance, we can really pull from that. And what this means is we have a much larger data pool to pull from and can answer much more specific questions. Um, so not just, you know, what is the relationship between engagement and performance, but what is important to high performers? Why are employees maybe underperforming? And those questions that are, you know, really only possible at scale. Um, and so in this episode, you'll learn how your culture of feedback may actually be alienating your high performers. You'll learn the surprising reason why your employees may be underperforming. And you'll learn what the Pygmalion effect is and how it's stopping you from having more high performers. As a facilitator, I love getting those <laughs> learnings up front. We've told the audience what they're about to learn. Um, what I love about this, and I think one of my pet peeves working in the, you know, HR and workplace culture space for, you know, the last decade plus is anytime I pick up like a, you know, a newspaper from around the world, like a, a business newspaper, you see some of these studies and there is entire articles written about like a survey of 300 employees yeah. have now shown that like <laughs> you know, lunch on Tuesdays when sitting next to a dog is the thing that your employees need. I'm like, okay, firstly... I don't know how you found that conclusion. And secondly, <laughs> 200 employees is not telling you anything. And I don't even know who those 200 are. Yeah. So I love that we have access to this. I guess because we're combining a whole bunch of different companies together and we're getting all of these different data sets together and we're also combining engagement and performance data, I'm sure there was some standardization that had to be done and there was probably some data cleanup that ha had to get done. So for anyone who was like, really into this subject and wants to know how we ended up with this specific set, what can you tell them? Yeah, I won't go too far because I think that's probably not most people, uh, but I could talk about it forever. We do have some people geeks <laughs> listening. We, we, we have some real people geeks listening. Um, so yes, it was a lot of work. Um, so we had to go into every single performance rating scale um, and Interestingly, what we found was that over half of our customers are using a performance rating scale that's completely unique to them. So that was one thing that was interesting. Um, and we looked at 800 scales. And so what we had to do was look at not only the label, but also the distribution, because we really wanted to like hone in on, you know, high performers, low performers, those extreme buckets. And when we looked at the distribution, we saw that companies have a one, very different ways of assessing performance, but also there were definitely organizations that had problems with leniency bias. So meaning that 
over 50% of their employees were considered high performers, which there's probably, like, that's just not possible. So we were also removing those companies where we saw that there's there's not a likelihood that you really have that many high performers. And so what we were doing was looking at the label and the distribution, and we were able to standardize the rating scales of 741 companies and over 200,000 employees, and we did that into a four-point scale. Um, so the ones were those that were underperforming, twos were meeting expectations, so they're solid performers. Threes were consistently exceeding expectations. Uh, We could say good performers. And then fours were setting a new standard. These are truly the highest performers. Um, And in general, that was only about four to eight percent of an organization's population. I'm sitting here trying to like picture someone listening who's going, oh my God, I work at that company where like everyone is being told they're a high performer. And it's like, it's actually not that useful if they're like, you know, congratulations, 90% of everyone was just like amazing this year. And then I'm sure someone listening is also like, oh yeah, we like deeply customized our performance system down to it, like an absolute, like so specific that I'm not even sure if we could have made this research. But I think what you were able to show is that while it makes sense to customize it for the culture that you have, it doesn't mean that there isn't some level of standard that we can at least look at when it comes to research like this. Exactly. And some companies had the opposite issue, right? There's only like 1% of people that were considered high performers <laughs> and they were like, wow. everyone's underperforming. And maybe that's true or um, maybe they just have very high standards and that's not a problem either. I'm starting to think about all of my friends uh, in Silicon Valley who work at some of those really intense companies where like the the bar is so high that I'm like, I wonder if there are any of those (laughs) companies. But we are not here to guess which companies have which performance rating scale. That is not what this is about. We are looking at large buckets of research here. So I guess when you have to go through this process and why I wanted to kind of explain some of this up front is that like, you know, those clickbaity articles saying like engagement and performance equals this don't really tell you anything about the process, anything about the research that was done. I guess when you're going through this process of trying to standardize, you're probably going to be learning some things about, you know, what's happening um, with different companies and, and, and their approaches. So, throughout that process, was there anything surprising that you found that you wanted to share? Yes. Yeah. Um, so, one thing we found was I think most people would assume that more performance discussions are always better, right? Like we constantly hear about the importance of continuous feedback. And as a byproduct of this research, you know, what we had was a company's performance approach and we had their employees' perceptions of that approach. And so we looked at the cadence of performance discussions. So comparing whether that formal discussion happened once a year twice a year, um, quarterly, or more than that, um, more than, like, for example, uh, every other month. And we looked at how employees felt about that. So looking at their if their job performance was evaluated fairly, if their manager shows an interest in their career aspirations, if the right people are being recognized and rewarded, and then if people are being held accountable. And what we found was for every single one of those, the sweet spot was actually four times a year or once a quarter. And in fact, employees that went through an annual performance review, which everyone is like, 
that's the worst thing you can do is an annual performance review. They actually had higher perceptions of things like their job being um, performance being evaluated fairly than those who did it every two months. So that was a real surprise mm-hmm. to me. And then once I thought about it for a little bit, it did make sense that if you're getting feedback from your manager in a formal discussion before like before you feel like you've had a chance to act on it, right? To digest it, act on it, and they're telling you it again, that would be quite frustrating. Yeah, and even just like the idea of every two months, I could feel like something like recency bias would be popping in because you're doing it so often that like, you know, you're like, oh, okay, well, like what did the person do last week? Because I have to do this like checking conversation every, you know, eight or so weeks. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like it'll versus, you know, doing a reflection every quarter or even once a year really forces you to go, all right, over this calendar period, like where did we start? Where did we get to? What were some highlights? What were some key projects? What were some opportunities? And then you combine that with other pieces of feedback that you have. So, yeah, I'm one. not advocating for once a year, but just showing that yeah. <laughs> in comparison to a more continuous, um, actually a quarterly process seemed to be the best. And that does not mean that you should withhold feedback until you have those performance discussions, any sort of performance discussion that should not, feedback should not come as a surprise there, right? Like there should still be those ad hoc processes of, I just did a presentation and asking, what could I do better? You know, getting that feedback in the moment as well. But the structured process more times is not always better. Love that. So, again, I'm sure there's some people listening who are like, okay, we need to relook at everything that we're doing here, whether they're doing it every two months or once a year. So, find that sweet spot and then, um, yeah, you know, at the end of the day, we all want to make sure that our job performance is being evaluated fairly, that our manager is showing an interest in our career aspirations, that we're feeling recognized and the right people are being recognized. And, and, you know, I think a culture-first company is definitely one where you know, people who are underperforming and also not only are they being held accountable, but we're also like trying to understand why. Yeah. We're trying to learn about what's happening. And, and supporting them. I think that's, that's something we'll talk about yes. later, hopefully. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I think that is one one of the areas that I guess after people look at some of this um, data inside of their organization, they might typically want to start splitting out personas. You know, they might have the persona of the high performers um, and they might be spending a lot of time working out what are they doing and trying to study them. And then, you know, obviously you also need to be supporting people who haven't been able to reach that performance level and understand why. Um what did you find when it comes to maybe splitting out some of those personas and, um, you know, a company spending more time, you know, focusing on one versus the other? Uh, oh, that's a great question. Um, so we did find, and that has to do with the Pygmalion effect that I said people would find out about later. Um, so the Pygmalion mm. effect was coined by a study um, by Rosenthal and Jacobson in the 1960s. And basically, at the beginning of a school year, they told the teachers which students were the brightest in the class. And eight months later, when they tested those students, they were the brightest in the class. But there was only one catch. Those students had been completely randomly selected. So what this showed was that you know, the way the expectations that the teachers had of those students changed the way that they interacted with those students, which changed 
the support that they were given and ultimately impacted the student's future performance. And we see the same thing happens with performance rating. So once an employee is rated as a high performer, they see really large improvements in many areas. And let me take a step back to say that we followed um, these individuals across two years. So we were able to see how it changed over time once they were rated. And we see that uh, these high performers kind of become the apple of their manager's eye, and they're given even more support than the others. And from the organizational side, they're given many more development opportunities. And I understand why companies do that because they're using it kind of as a reward. But the problem is that your good performers are not, you know, those ones who are consistently in the, uh, consistently exceeds expectations, but aren't yet considered high performers. They aren't in the top, top bucket. They're in the one right below. They're not giving equal development opportunities, despite the fact that they would benefit even more from them. And so by using development as a reward for high performers, these companies are um, inadvertently widening that gap between their highest performers and their good performers, making it more difficult to kind of attain that status. There's like so much here. Like (laughs) my brain is exploding at like at the idea of this because, you know, I've seen, you know, presentations in the past where where they've even, I think, used uh, like the armed forces as as an example where basically they've just randomly told like you are in the highest performing group over here and you are not. And the effect that has had on those people over the, you know, the course when they just made it up. There was like nothing that said that they were a high performer or not. Yeah, and with managers, we actually saw a a linear decline. So the lowest performers have the lowest perceptions of their managers. You know, the second second mm. lowest, third third lowest, and the high performers have the highest. And that's true across these questions that have a direct impact on someone's performance. So, for example, my manager sets a clear strategy to achieve our goals, there is a 25% difference in favorability, which is someone agreeing to that question between the low performers and the high performers. Uh, We see Mm. similar 14% difference in my manager gives me useful performance feedback. And the same when it comes to the manager understanding the challenge and blockers the teams face. So if your manager doesn't uh, give you feedback if they don't help you with a strategy to achieve your goals and they aren't able to help you remove blockers, how are you expected to perform? It's a self-fulfilling yeah. prophecy. Oh, okay. I, I, my, I'm having many brain explosions uh, on this early morning here in Australia <laughs> while chatting to you. Um, okay. So, I want to I w- I go back to high performance yeah. for a second and I guess the impact or, or rather the expectations that they might have. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you are someone who has identified as a high performer and you want to work at a high performance company with a high performance culture and you just like, you know, you have these high expectations about like who you are, where you work and, and what the environment needs to be. Was there anything that we were learning about the companies, about how high performers work and maybe what they expect from their organization? Yeah, yeah, they are definitely unique. So overall, we found that high performers really expect a high performance culture. So if I take a step back and explain, first, 
how we define engagement at CultureAmp is we ask five questions, um, and it's looking at basically the level of enthusiasm um, and commitment that someone has for the organization. And so we ask how motivated they are to go go beyond what they would in a similar role elsewhere. So that's kind of the motivation piece. We look at if they're proud to work there and if they would recommend the company as a great place to work. That's like an advocacy piece. And then we look at that commitment piece with two questions. I rarely think about looking for a job at another company, and I see myself still working at the company in two years' time. So, so much of performance is related to that motivation piece. And when we looked at motivation and what's correlated to someone saying they feel more motivated at this company than they would in a role elsewhere, what we see is that for everyone, belonging and the company contributing to their development is pretty equally important. It's very important, but there's one thing that's only important for high performers, and that's that the people mm. around them give constructive feedback. This was even more important than belonging, even more important than development, and for every wow. other performance bucket, it was not important. It wasn't even in the top 50 most important questions, but it was number one for high performers. So I, I guess it just shows that like not only do they have that high expectation of themselves, they have the high expectation of other people around them also giving them feedback in order for them to like keep improving. They're like, keep telling me ways to improve. And it's kind of like maybe they, you know, if I'm making an assumption here, it's like they feel like they can belong anywhere with a high performance culture, but they what they really want mm-hmm. is like people telling them like, hey, this is how you're getting like 1% better, 5% better, 10% better. So they're constantly in some ways, creating a feedback culture around them. Yeah. Yeah. There's an insatiable need for like continuous improvement and development um, through that constructive feedback specifically. And I think that's important to note because so many companies say, oh, we're really focused on creating a culture of feedback, but they only do it halfway. And what that creates is just a culture of praise and that would be uniquely alienating for your high performers because they want that constructive feedback piece. And that takes a lot more practice and a lot more psychological yep. safety to to be able to ask and receive for that, that constructive feedback. So if we've got this picture of this high performing, like feedback magnet person operating inside an organization and they're just like, this is... You know, this is the expectations they have of themselves, that the company, the culture, their leader. That sounds tiring, yeah. even just saying it out loud. <laughs> just this constant, like, I am at 110%. Not that that's statistically possible, but I am just so amazing. And look at all this feedback. And I'm always like, okay, like, that's tiring. Is there, yeah. is there anything we learned about high performers and well being? Are they so engaged and so high performing that they don't even care about well-being or are we seeing anything when it comes to how they replenish themselves and things like burnout? Um, I think you are psychic, Tamon, because uh, they are lowest on some of the well-being questions, like being able to accomplish what they need to during normal working hours, 16% difference. Um, and they are also lowest on being able to switch off uh, from work. So those are two very important things, right, when it comes to well-being. 
<laughs> how long you're working and if you're still thinking about work after you're working. But they're highest on a question we have about finding the pace of work energizing. So they're like, yeah, all mm-hmm. I do is work and I love it. Um, so there seems to be a little bit, uh, a small dose of workaholism there. Um, but when it comes to being committed to the organization, so those two questions I talked about earlier, I rarely think about looking for a job in another company and I see myself still working at the company in two years time. What we find is that for high performers more than any other performance bucket, Um, having access to resources for coping with stress and receiving support from those around them are even more important for them committing to the organization for the long haul. So it seems like they Mm -hmm. recognize that the way that they're working isn't the most sustainable and that they're going to need additional resources to keep them from burning out. So I guess that's a really good call out for managers, um, you know, there is benefit from having people in an organization for longer periods of time from the you know ability to mentor others to sharing knowledge to becoming you know things like a you know culture carrier someone who can you know teach other employees about what it's like to work there you know what we don't want is an environment where we can only like bring in these high performers for like one yes. year have them go like amazing results but then just like you know burn out or stress so like yep we want people who want to achieve, we want people who want to take on feedback, but also we also need to make sure that there is some of those support mechanisms around them because I'm sure, you know, we'd all like to be able to keep those high performers for a longer period of time. So we get some of the wider benefits of the individual as opposed to just the task-related performance that you might get if they're only there for something like 12 months. Yeah, yeah. And we actually see this play out in the data that performance is transient because when we followed employees over one year to see how their rating changed, we found that for the solid and good performers, they were more likely to stay the same. That was the most likely thing to happen over that year. But for high performers, they were most likely to decline. So it's really difficult to stay in that high performance mindset for a long period. And then on the other extreme, we actually found that if a low performer is still at the organization within one year, seven out of 10 of them actually improve within that year to be a solid performer. So, yeah, I guess that's even a on the flip side, yeah. you know, looking past that 12 months for that employee, right? So, you know, what else can we do to support them? And I guess, you know, we spoke about I guess, the, um, the importance of well-being for a high performer and also, you know, supporting them inside of the organization. I think anyone who's been working over the last few years has known that the external environment has had a massive impact on how, like, you know, how we've worked, where we're working, maybe mm-hmm. even what we're working on. Many organizations have had to pivot products or industries or things. So, yeah. If someone is underperforming, you know, was there anything we were able to learn about maybe things outside of their direct role or external reasons why that might be happening? Well, it's funny that you say outside of their direct role, because the first thing we found that is that they might be in the wrong role. (laughs) Uh, When we looked (laughs) at, uh, we followed those employees through to exit to identify which questions were most predictive Generally, we always find those two commitment questions to be the most predictive, but 
that was different for the underperformers. So instead, the question, I'm happy with my current role relative to what was described to me, was even more predictive than I rarely think about looking for a job at another company. And they respond much less favorably to this question. So that's the first thing. It might not be that it's inherent to the individual. It's actually they're just in the wrong role completely. Mm -hmm. Um, And another thing we found was that when we um, looked at performance longitudinally, so what we did was we identified employees who improved uh, between one performance review cycle and another. And then we looked back to see how had their employee engagement survey responses changed between those two. And what we found was the most predictive question was pretty unsurprising. It was, I know what I need to do to be successful in my role. So those that improved in this question were much more likely to go up in a performance rating during the next review period, and vice versa, those that declined were much more likely to see a decline in performance rating. And I think both of these things sound obvious, like people should be in the right role and they should know what's expected of them and what success looks like, but... We know, particularly when an organization is growing, um, we did research uh, that was published in our Culture Crunch report looking at you know what changes as an organization grows rapidly. And one of the things is role clarity, knowing what you need to do to mm-hmm. be successful. And I think many organizations um, forget that key component during times of change. Things like restructuring, that's a moment where employees often don't know what success looks like in their role. And so by watching that question or something similar, you might be able to stave off performance issues. So I guess one of the things that I really heard there was that With your low performers, yes, the external environment might be chaotic and there might be lots of uncertainty and lots of change. There is many things within the scope of their role that you can, you know, provide greater clarity and greater, um, you know, I guess getting really specific about what performance looks like, what is your current role, what is the role scope. And uh, that was um, actually one of my kind of 2022 like top 10 topics I wanted people to be thinking about. We did a series at the start of this year and one of them was actually to do a bit of a role reset, Mm -hmm. like look at how has someone's job changed over the last few years? Have you actually updated what their role description is to that? Are their goals actually matched to that? You know, is any of the structural things around it? Because there'd be nothing worse than having, you know, someone who's like, I just spent 12 months really thinking I was doing amazing and none of the structural pieces of how their performance or their goals that were measured were updated so that person thinks that they've done a great job and then the performance system fails them because their manager can't actually, you know, be able to say, well, according to this, you did. Yeah, and they don't have something to look back on to say, okay, am Mm. I doing my top priorities, right? Um, So this is a completely different study, but we just finished it. Uh, So you're getting a sneak peek. Breaking news, breaking news. (laughs) Um, We looked at all of the inspirations in our inspiration engine. So that's basically a collection of ideas of what organizations can do to improve um, different parts of the employee experience. And when we compared all of these inspirations, the number one inspiration that had the largest impact was role narratives, 
which sounds so mm. simple. But on average, companies improved 26% in favorability by implementing role narratives around um, you know, the employee understanding what their role was, as well as holding others accountable. So it seems like it's not only for the individual, but also for others around them to be aware of, you know, who do I go to for XYZ, right? That's very difficult as an organization grows. 26. Yes. That is, okay, so like from a people science perspective, just to give some people who, you know, like what is statistically significant in terms of, of, of a percentage increase that gets you going well? Well, it depends on how many employees we're looking at. So there's a lot of things to take mm-hmm. into account. What's the standard deviation? All of that. Um, but I would say past like 5% or like, oh, that's like, that's different. 26 is insane. <laughs> and it was something so simple. Like I think our inspiration engine, we're always like, oh, what's the most novel thing? Role narratives was not one of those most novel things, but it's just so basic and important. And organizations are often not doing that, that basic piece or doing it like you mentioned, right? At the beginning when someone starts mm-hmm. a role, but not on a continuous basis and updating it. So if you listen to the first episode, you know, we spent a lot of time um, with um, aquatic themed metaphors of things like data lakes and data buckets. So a big takeaway here from that little, you know, not little, that massive <laughs> difference is so many organizations spend all their time focusing on new people into their business, you know, brand new role descriptions, making sure that they're set up for success, the onboarding. Yeah. There's potentially this gigantic leaky bucket inside of every organization. And then all it might take is a, a reset conversation about role clarity, role scope. Mm-hmm. What are you currently working on? Does it match? Like we all grow and change. And like many of us are not going to be doing the exact same role that we were hired for. Like, even if our we got promoted into a new role, it doesn't always mean that everything carries with us. It doesn't always mean that those things get updated. So, you know, and again, this is one of those things where we get to say things like this on a podcast, like, just do this. And you're like, oh, thanks, Damon and Frasier. We have 19,000 employees <laughs> yeah. at our company, and that will take us 10,000 years in order to mm. get everyone's. But you can break it down. You know, a manager can start having these conversations. You can you can partner with your people team to go, yeah. what would it look like to see if one department did a role clarity exercise? And then look at, at, at the data. If you did it yeah. just for marketing, how does marketing change if everyone gets role clarity or finance or whatever? So, I think there's some really nice, you know, actionable things that people can start doing here. I love that. Yeah. Run your own experiment. We'd love to hear about it. Yeah, send us uh, send send us your results, and you might be featured on a future podcast episode. So you know, we've discussed how your culture of feedback can be potentially alienating your highest performers. We've also spoke about the surprising reason why your employees may be underperforming, and the Pygmalion effect. Um, and my head exploding emoji about how all the ways I've seen that play out in my experience over the years. Was there any other, I guess, sort of takeaways or you know, like? You and your entire team spend so much time looking at this data. Is there anything else that you were like, I need to make sure that listeners kind of understand this relationship between um, employee engagement and employee performance? There's two, actually. Yes. So many takeaways. A bonus one. All right. (laughs) Um, Well, one is how important the performance management process is. And of course, you're like, well, yeah, you have a tool that does performance management. (laughs) 
But plug alert, plug alert. Um, but I think it gets such a a bad rep, and people are like, "Oh, performance management is universally despised," and that's not the case. We actually see that your high performers are like acutely aware and keenly interested in your performance management approach because we found that when it comes to advocating for the company. Um, which is you're proud to work there and you would recommend it to others. Everyone has to have confidence in the leaders. Like that's the most important thing. What's unique to high performers is three questions around performance management. So one is that um, performance reviews focus on quality and improvement. The second is that performance standards are consistently applied, and then that bias is minimized in performance reviews. And so I think this really shows that they are having an outsized impact on the organization and they want to know that they themselves or anyone that they refer to the company would be recognized for that impact. Um, So that kind of goes into the whole high performers expect a performance culture, but one of the ways to do that is through your performance management approach. Um, Mm -hmm. and then the second one is performance is transient, right? We already talked about, especially for the extremes. Um, and I'm not sure it's reasonable actually to expect someone to be a high performer forever. Like sometimes there are seasons of sacrifice and then you need to rejuvenate. And, uh, one of the metaphors that I love that our CEO DDA talks about is the Peloton, which is, the Viking structure, not the Viking organization, uh, which is when someone is leading the Peloton, they're taking the brunt of the force of, of drag, right? And they make it easy easier for everyone else who's in their slipstream behind them. And you can't stay in the front for very long. You have to cycle in and out so that you can rejuvenate and also so that you know, you can take on the front to give a reprieve to others. And I think more organizations need to allow for that cyclical nature of performance and support employees through the waves of performance that come along. I love that. We Just because someone's a low performer right now doesn't mean that we should expect that they can't have a chance to also play a different role within that peloton. Just because they're at the back doesn't mean that they can't play, get to the middle or even be in front. And just because you're in front, there is absolutely no expectation that that person should be leading from the front for the entire race. And, Mm -hmm. you know, obviously, um, you and I have been at Coltramp for, you know, several years between us. We've seen the growth of the company from, you know, a handful of employees to now over a thousand employees. And I think... We've seen that metaphor play out um, both at our company as well as other startups Mm -hmm. is that, you know, a startup can't go from 10 employees to 1,000 with the same first 10 being out front the entire time. We all need to find, you know, ways that we can contribute across the journey, ways that we can be the high performer, then take others on that journey, you know, look at the role clarity, change roles and adapt. And I think um, this is a really important reminder, especially, you know, we're recording this towards the end of the year. I'm sure many people are looking at kind of their quarterly, you know, performance reviews and end of year wrap ups and like, you know, role clarity moving forward. This is a great time to be thinking about these things. You know, what about your environment needs to change? What about your role structure and clarity needs to change? How are you supporting employees who are at the high level right now? And also, how are you 
giving greater understanding and clarity to those who aren't high performing so that they can have a chance and, you know, that same environment in order to get there. So I think this is a really timely conversation. Yeah. The new year is always a good time to put new things in place. (laughs) Well, this is, uh, I've been a fascinating conversation. Um, So like I said, you know, we are going to be uh, looking at some of this research that we have access to. We have an incredible research team and, you know, one of our goals at Culture Amp is to make sure that we're putting out all of this amazing research so that you're not going to some, you know, very large newspaper reading a study about 14 employees in the middle of nowhere who's telling you what their relationship between engagement and performance. So, Frasier, if people want to find out more information about some of this research or read any other parts of our research, where should they be going to? Yes. Um, we publish this as a three-part blog series. So, if you were listening along and you're like, I wish I had a visual to go with what Frasier was just describing, there are beautiful visualizations and graphs. Um, so, head over to the Culture Amp blog. Um, and I always am posting them on LinkedIn as well. So, feel free to follow me, Frasia Jackson. One more plug <laughs> alert. I need like a little button that I can uh, I, I can click. But <laughs> no, this has been amazing. For anyone who's been a long-time listener of the Culture First podcast, you know that uh, I very rarely sit here and talk about Culture Amp products. But the reason that we're talking about, um, you know, our engagement and performance products is because we have this incredible data and we have so many amazing data scientists and people scientists and people who are sitting here crunching the numbers to really find these anecdotes so that they can help you build a culture first company. So, Frasier, I just want to say a big shout out to you. Do you want to maybe give a shout out to the team and everyone who was able to bring this research to life? Uh, yes, absolutely. A shout out to um, Winnie Yip, who is our lead data scientist, um, Lisa Zhao, who is our data analyst, um, Vivian Wu, who is an incredible uh, brain trust for me, um, and then Kelly Luck, who helps me turn these ideas into beautiful writing. Thank you to everyone and the design team who turns it into beautiful visualizations. (laughs) And the thousand plus Culture Amp employees who support every single organization that we're, you know, that allows us to bring all of this data or data because I'm trying to be inclusive of all the different data's out there (laughs) to life. So, Frasia, thanks so much for joining me once again on the Culture First podcast. Thanks for having me. Always happy to come back and nerd out some more. I'm sure there will be demand to have you back uh, (laughs) again soon. A big thank you to Freesia for joining me once again on the Culture First podcast. Hopefully, this episode answers some of those questions that you have about the relationship between your most highly engaged employees and the high performers, and also what you can do to help change the scenario for employees who aren't in one of those categories. What do your employees need in order to make sure that the environment is one where they can feel really highly engaged, highly motivated, as well as looking at all of the internal and external factors that might be impacting their performance right now and the role that you can play to help those employees reach those levels. If you're sitting there and you're saying, you know what, I've got some questions and I want to know if there's some research or if there's some data out there. And maybe you're a reader of the People Geekly newsletter that comes out every week from Culture Amp, or you love our blog where we actually showcase some of this data. If it's something that you've read or if it's a question that you've got and you're like, you know what, I'd love for Damon to see whether we can do, you know, an episode on that or interview someone, you know, that's written some of those pieces, then please just reach out to me and let me know. 
I would love to make sure that whatever questions you have about building a better world of work are things that we can answer here on the Culture First podcast. So definitely please reach out on any of the social media channels. I'm at Damon Klotz on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, wherever you can find me. I would love to hear from you. If you've enjoyed this episode and you haven't left a review or subscribe yet, then what are you waiting for? The more followers, subscribers and reviews that we get on the show, every little one of those pieces helps us reach more people who can learn and be inspired to create a better world of work. You know, that's a pretty lofty mission that we have here at Culture Ramp. And this podcast is just one of the ways to share stories to create that better world of work that we all want to be part of. I've been your host, Damon Klotz, and Culture First is brought to you by the team here at Culture Ramp, the world's leading employee experience platform. Learn more about Culture Ramp by heading to cultureamp.com and tell them that the podcast sent you. Thank you for listening, and I hope you have an amazing rest of your day.